This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for August 17, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our topic this week, the debt and deficit, entitlement programs, and federal spending. Our guest is Alice Rivlin. Her resume includes former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, founding director of the Congressional Budget Office, director of the Office of Management and Budget in the Clinton administration, and currently she is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We will talk about what an approaching $22 trillion debt really means and where the government is spending its money. Two-thirds of it now goes for entitlement programs, including Social Security. And a significant change in the program came on April 20th, 1983. That's when President Ronald Reagan signed a bipartisan Social Security bill. This bill demonstrates for all time our nation's ironclad commitment to Social Security. It assures the elderly that America will always keep the promises made in troubled times a half a century ago. It assures those who are still working that they, too, have a pact with the future. From this day forward, they have our pledge that they will get their fair share of benefits when they retire. And this bill assures us of one more thing that is equally important. It's a clear and dramatic demonstration that our system can still work when men and women of goodwill join together to make it work. Just a few months ago, there was legitimate alarm that Social Security would soon run out of money. On both sides of the political aisle, there were dark suspicions that opponents from the other party were more interested in playing politics than in solving the problem. But in the 11th hour, a distinguished bipartisan commission appointed by House Speaker O'Neill, by Senate Majority Leader Baker, and by me, began to find a solution that could be enacted into law. Political leaders of both parties set aside their passions and joined in that search. That was President Reagan, April 1983. Alice Rivlin will discuss why that was a significant moment for the Social Security program and for bipartisanship here in Washington. We'll also discuss the nation's growing debt. More workers in the U.S. economy does mean more tax revenue. For that, we will hear from the current Fed chair, Jerome Powell. He testified before Congress earlier this year. Part of what has kept that participation rate stable is that more working-age people have started looking for a job which has helped make up for the large number of baby boomers who are retiring and leaving the workforce. Another piece of good news is that the robust conditions in the labor market are being felt by many different groups. For example, the unemployment rates for African Americans and Hispanics have fallen sharply over the past few years and are now near their lowest levels since the Bureau of Labor Statistics began reporting data for these groups in 1972. <clears throat> Groups with higher unemployment rates have tended to benefit the most as the job market has strengthened. That was the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, testifying this summer on Capitol Hill. And let me begin with his tenure as the Fed chair. How is he doing? Oh, I think he's doing great. Uh, He took over from Janet Yellen, who did a fine job uh, under difficult uh, circumstances. And he's basically continuing on the path that uh, she set. It's... uh, a little dicey to be the Fed chair right now. It's hard to know how fast the economy is going to grow and how fast they should raise interest rates. But I think he's handling everything just fine. Which is a perfect segue to what we want to talk about, the debt, the deficit, entitlement programs. And let me begin with Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. 
Are we, from your standpoint, on an unsustainable path in terms of spending by the federal government for these programs? Yes, we are. But that doesn't mean we can't fix it. I think uh, with all of these programs, it's careful. Uh, it's important to realize that we've got some big problems, but we can fix them. And Social Security is the uh, prime example of that. Social Security is a very good program. It helps millions of people. It's reduced poverty among the elderly. It is very popular, but uh, it is not paying for itself as we look down the road. Uh, when you get to about 2034, which we used to think is a long time in the future, and it's really not anymore, uh, but when you get to about 2034, uh, the system will not be able to pay all benefits. Uh, that's not to say it won't be able to pay any. It will be able to pay all of the benefits that it can with the money that's coming in uh, from people who are paying into the Social Security system, and that'll be about 75% of the benefits that are owed to people who are retiring or have retired. But uh, we have to fix that. Uh, we have to make sure that the people who retire in 2034 and after, and those people are already middle-aged, they aren't children, uh, that those people get their benefits. Now, there are only two ways to fix that. Uh, you can raise uh, the uh, taxes uh, that people pay into the system, or you can reduce the benefits a little bit gradually over time so that they aren't quite so generous. Uh, in the past, we've done both, and I think we're going to have to do a little of each again. As you look at the financing model of Social Security, is it pretty much the same today as it was when President Roosevelt put the program in place in the 1930s? Well, two things are different. The basic financing model is the same. Uh, the idea is you pay in while you're working, and uh, then you get benefits when you retire, and that hasn't changed. Uh, two things have changed. The benefits are more generous than they used to be, and we've covered other things, uh, disability and uh, other benefits that weren't originally uh, included in the Social Security system. But the other thing that's happened is that people are living longer. Uh, back in the Roosevelt days, uh, people uh, died much younger. And uh, now we all live longer, not everybody, but a very substantial number of people. So we're drawing benefits over a much longer period of time. And that's created the problem. So why 65? Why not 68 or 70? Where did that number come up? Well, 65 seemed like a good number back in uh, the 1930s. Uh, but uh, it actually isn't 65 anymore. Uh, in 1983 when the system was beginning to get into trouble, uh, the uh, Congress and the President, and that's Reagan and a Democratic Congress uh, whom the Speaker was Tip O'Neill, uh, worked together, thoroughly bipartisan effort, uh, to fix the system. And one of the things they did was raise the retirement age to 67. But gradually, over time, we aren't quite there yet. Uh, people who retire now are retiring at uh, 66 and two months or something. 
uh, it's on its way to 67. So one of the things we could do in the future is uh, to raise the retirement age a bit more. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the best thing to do, uh, but uh, it's certainly one of the possibilities. The reason it's difficult is that uh, a lot of people, well-educated people with good jobs, uh, can work a long time. But uh, people who have difficult uh, blue-collar jobs, if you're uh, a construction worker, for example, uh, you can't work as long. Uh, so we have to figure out what to do about that. In terms of the revenue coming in for Social Security, right now, after you earn a certain amount, I think it's $157,000 roughly a year, you are no longer taxed. Do you see that changing? Uh, yes, I hope so. I think we should raise uh, the uh, cap on uh, the tax. Uh, it goes up gradually anyway. It's in the law that it's indexed and uh, goes up very gradually. Uh, but it has fallen behind average uh, wages. Uh, a smaller portion of total wages are taxed now uh, than were taxed at the beginning of the system. Uh, and we ought to raise that cap uh, faster uh, so that something like uh, 90% or 92% or whatever of earnings are captured. I don't think it would be terrible to raise it to 100%, uh, but it should be done gradually. You don't want it to be a big shock. Beyond that, Medicare and Medicaid, as you look at health care costs today and into the future and what the government pays for those who qualify for those two entitlement programs, what needs to happen? Well, now you're talking about a real problem. Social Security is pretty easy. Uh, we have fixed it before. We can fix it again. And there aren't very many options. The problem of uh, Medicare and Medicaid is partly the same one, that people are living much longer than they used to and therefore are eligible for benefits, especially under Medicare, uh, much longer than they used to be. But the other problem is different from Social Security. Uh, Social Security is just money. Uh, in the case of Medicaid and Medicare, you're paying for a service, namely medical care, which is getting both better and more expensive. Uh, doctors can do a lot more for people than they used to be able to, but it costs more and more, and the total spending on health care uh, for the whole country, not just uh, the federal programs, has been rising over the years faster than our economy's been growing. Uh, we're now devoting 18% of our GDP, of everything we produce, to health care. Now, uh, we're getting a lot for it, but uh, it, if it keeps increasing and we keep spending more and more of everything we produce on health care, then we're not spending on some other things we need. So we have to figure out how to slow the growth of health care costs. There are some ways to do that. Uh, we know, I think, that um, uh, there's a lot of waste in the health care system, uh, duplicative tests and uh, that sort of thing that uh, aren't, uh, aren't always necessary. And we know that our prices are very high. 
uh, and profits are high in the healthcare industries and related industries, pharmaceuticals, for example. Um, so we have to figure out how to produce enough health care, but uh, at more efficiently and uh, with uh, less excess profits. Alice Rivlin, you were in the Clinton White House during the debate over health care. You certainly saw what happened with the debate over Obamacare. Why is this so hard to fix? I think the basic reason is that our two parties no longer work together on things like this. The, and Obamacare is, I believe, a perfect example. The, the, the Obama administration actually thought that they were picking a program that Republicans could support. It was they didn't go for a single-payer system or the government taking over everything. They went for what is really a niche program. We already had Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and we had lots of people, uh, half the working population covered by employer-based benefits. But there was this growing group of people who had to go into the individual insurance market and buy health insurance for themselves. And that was a very messy market. Uh, lots of people couldn't afford to buy insurance in the individual market. Uh, partly because of the way the insurance companies were behaving. Uh, they were trying to find the healthiest people and sell insurance to them rather than to sell to everybody. So what Obamacare did uh, was to try to fill this hole in our system with a system that had worked in Massachusetts and had been bipartisan there. Uh, Governor Romney had worked it out with the Democratic legislature. And it involved subsidizing people so that they could go into the individual market and buy insurance, but also guaranteeing that everybody could get insurance and that the insurance companies wouldn't base their premiums on people's pre-existing conditions or health conditions uh, um, generally. That was a good idea. And it was essentially a bipartisan idea. And if uh, the Obama administration had been able to bring in uh, enough Republicans to work it out together, I think we would uh, be in a very different place than we are now. You are part of an organization, the Bipartisan Policy Center. When did this breakdown begin from your standpoint? When did you begin to see it change? Well, partisan politics has been part of Washington life ever since I've lived here. But there was a time when the parties worked together better than they do now. Uh, one such time was the 1990s. And I'm not saying that everything was friendly between Republicans and Democrats. We had the impeachment. <clears throat> we had the impeachment. We had a lot of difficult things and a lot of name-calling and a lot of uh, partisanship. However, on some big things, and one of them was the debt where we started this conversation, Republicans and Democrats over a whole decade uh, were able to get the budget from a very substantial uh, deficit 
into surplus. We actually had four years of surplus at the end of the 90s. And that wasn't because they all joined hands and, and said, we're friends now and we're going to fix this. But it was because they were willing to negotiate uh, with each other. It was also because they set up some rules for budgeting. Uh, and this was an act signed by pr the first President Bush in 1990 that set up some rules for budgeting uh, that uh, lasted until 2002. And that cost him the presidency <clears throat> in 1992? Well, I think the thing that cost him, the, or arguably cost him the presidency, uh, was uh, a, another thing that he did, along with signing the Budget Enforcement Act that embodied the rules, uh, he was willing to sign an agreement with the Democrats in Congress that raised taxes. Uh, and he had promised not to do that, and uh, his own party was pretty mad at him. Uh, but it was actually the right thing to do. And when the Clinton administration came in, and I was part of that, uh, we uh, raised taxes again uh, uh, at the high end of the income scale, which is what... Uh, President Bush had done, uh, and it didn't tank the economy. Uh, all the supply-side economists said, oh, we're going to have a terrible recession. The economy is going to go into the tank. It didn't at all. The economy strengthened, actually. Uh, and uh, with the increased taxes and the good economy and restraint on spending, which was enforced by these budget rules, uh, we got the surplus. As the former director of the Office of Management and Budget, can you visualize to those listening on radio and in this podcast how the budget is divided? If it were a pie, what percent goes to entitlement programs? What percent is defense? What percent is discretionary? Well, about two-thirds goes to entitlement programs, and that's largely Social Security Medicare and Medicaid, although there were a few others. That high? Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, less than a third goes to uh, discretionary spending, which is that long list of everything else the government does, national parks and, and defense. Defense is a big part of discretionary spending. Uh, and uh, criminal justice and uh, the whole the whole gamut. Uh, the other big item, uh, which fits in there somewhere, uh, is uh, interest on the national debt. So uh, you've you've got um, interest, which you have to pay, uh, entitlement programs, which you have to pay unless you change the law, uh, and the discretionary spending, which is appropriated every year, uh, which is um, about a third of the budget. Which leads us to an approaching $22 trillion national debt. How did it get to be so big? Well, $22 trillion is a gee whiz number. <laughs> Almost nobody uh, can grasp uh, what that number uh, means, and it's about the size of our GDP, of everything we produce every year. It's actually a little bigger than the GDP. Uh, now, it won't help you much uh, to, if I say uh, only uh, most of that is a debt that we owe to uh, 
ordinary people and other countries and so forth. Some of it we owe to ourselves, uh, about $6 trillion, and that's the part that uh, the government has borrowed from itself, essentially borrowed from the trust funds that support Social Security and Medicare. So even if you take that out, uh, you have uh, debt held by the public, and the public includes the Chinese and all kinds of people. Uh, and uh, that's now about 75% of our uh, GDP. And uh, that's, a big, that's a big number. But it's a manageable number um, if we were to manage it. We're not managing it. We're not even talking about it. Uh, what we ought to be doing is sitting down together, Republicans and Democrats, and saying, uh, this uh, debt is uh, too high, and more importantly, it's growing faster than our economy can grow. So what are we going to do about it? Now, you may say, does that matter? I think it does. Uh, it matters in a lot of ways. Uh, if we have a very large debt, we will be reluctant to take on any more. And if we get into a recession or a war or some other kind of catastrophe, we're going to have to borrow more, and yet we're going to be very wary of doing that with such a, um, a big debt. And the other really important thing is we have to pay interest on this debt. Uh, and the interest has been sort of invisible for the last uh, uh, decade or more uh, because interest rates have been so low. In fact, when we came into the Clinton administration in 1993, interest on the debt was about 14% of the federal budget. Now it's only about 6 or 7 uh, The debt's much bigger, but interest rates are much lower. Uh, so we've been living in this false paradise that, uh, oh, the world is willing to uh, lend us money at very low interest rates. Let's borrow some more. And uh, we can't stay there forever. But without stating the obvious, if you have interest on a credit card debt, that's money you have to pay before you can spend money on anything that you want for your family or personal use. Conversely, interest on the debt by the federal government is money that is not used for roads or bridges or public education or other programs. Exactly. And that's uh, part of the problem. And one might wonder in retrospect why Bill Clinton, a Democratic president, who had promised all sorts of things, like a big infrastructure program and a middle-class tax cut, why he decided that he had to uh, focus first on getting the deficit down and getting the debt growing less rapidly. Uh, and the reason was exactly what you just said. Uh, that we realized that we couldn't do the things that the Clinton administration wanted to do if the interest on the debt kept growing. We better turn that around first, and then we would be in a better position to do other things. Explain the difference between the debt and the deficit. Ah, well, the uh, deficit is annual. It's the difference between what the government is paying out for all the services it provides and what it is taking in in taxes in any one year. So if it isn't taking in enough uh, to pay the, uh, uh, for the uh, spending that it must do, uh, it has to borrow. Uh, and the debt 
is the cumulative amount that it has borrowed. We've borrowed over the years uh, $21 trillion. Admittedly, very little, if anything, will happen in this midterm election. But in 2019, we will have a new Congress, regardless of who controls the House and the Senate, and uh, the second half of the Trump administration. What advice would you give the White House? What advice would you give Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill? I'd give them all the same advice. Look, folks, we've got a bunch of problems uh, coming at us that threaten our prosperity. One of them is the growing debt. Now, we've got to work together across party lines uh, to uh, decide what we're going to do to get the debt on a more sustainable track. And incidentally, uh, to fix Social Security and Medicare so that they're sustainable because they're a large uh, part of the same problem. And that's going to take some reduction in planned spending and some increased taxes. And we've just got to recognize that and work on how we're going to do that together. And the reason I say together, both parties, is that there's pain as well as gain. Uh, we have to do some things people don't want to do, like raising taxes or cutting benefits. Uh, and if one party does it alone, then the other party will say, see, they're ruining your Medicare or they're raising your taxes. Uh, so we have to have both parties do it together. Well, to that point, because as you well know, Democrats are very reluctant to cut benefits and programs and Republicans very reluctant to raise taxes. You bet. And we've got to get over that. Uh, I don't think this is the only problem that we need to solve bipartisanly. It's very similar, actually, to, to the problem of climate change. Uh, we need to make some difficult decisions there, and nobody's willing to face up to the problem. What this partisan warfare is doing is making everybody concentrate on winning the next election, as though that solved the things, uh, and not on how do we work together to solve problems like the debt, like climate change, and others. Will it take a crisis, and was it a crisis in the Reagan administration that led to reforms? Actually, the, it, it was a crisis in Social Security in the sense that under the rules of the Social Security system, uh, they couldn't have borrowed any more uh, without cutting benefits. But those are artificial rules. They could have changed the rules. Uh, but they used that crisis to say, we've got a big problem here. Let's work together to solve it. And I think we've got to do sort of the same thing. Um, if you mean, shall we wait until the economy collapses, uh, my advice would be no. Uh, our economy is doing quite well at the moment. That doesn't mean everything's perfect, but at least our GDP is growing, and uh, we have the wherewithal to fit, fix some of these things. So let's do it now while we can. Uh, it's uh, sort of like... Uh, fix the roof while the sun is shining. Don't wait till it starts pouring. How worried are you about the current fiscal situation that this country is in today? I'm not worried about the near term. I'm not worried about tomorrow or next year. Uh, I'm worried about the, the long term. 
because we're simply not facing up to uh, this big problem that we have. Now, uh, if something bad happens, if we get into a recession uh, or we have to fight a war or something, uh, then it will be a crisis uh, because we've got a very large debt and uh, we'll be forced into borrowing more. But we're not there now. Uh, we can gradually reduce the amount that we're borrowing, and that's a much more sensible thing uh, to do. We shouldn't wait for a crisis. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is that having a debt is not a problem as long as it's manageable, as long as it's on the right track. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, it's not that nobody should have debt. Uh, there was a time when hardly anybody uh, borrowed to buy a house. Now everybody borrows to buy a house. It's just normal to have uh, a mortgage on your house, but it should be a manageable mortgage, one uh, that you can pay off over a reasonable number of years. And looking at the federal debt, we used to say, well, uh, the uh, federal debt is... Uh, I mean, the deficit is whatever it was in a particular year, but our debt is only, say, 35% of our GDP, and that's manageable. We can get back uh, into a good position, as we did in the late 90s. Now it's much harder because the debt is higher, but the important thing is we aren't doing anything about it. We aren't talking about it. We, aren't, we don't have a plan. We're just letting it happen. And uh, in the last uh, uh, few, uh, well, within the Trump administration, uh, we've made it dramatically worse. Uh, we had a big tax cut and an increase in military and other spending. I'm not saying we didn't need uh, the increase in spending. I'm not saying we didn't need some kind of a uh, tax reform, but we should have thought about the debt before we did those things. Alice Rivlin, we appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you. I enjoyed it. C-SPAN's The Weekly is now available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcast.